You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David J. Lynch, global economics correspondent here at The Post. Today we have two segments on the airline industry and the future of aviation. Later on, we'll be joined by United Airlines CEO Scott Kirby. But first, we're going to hear from Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg. Mr. Secretary, welcome back to Washington Post Live. Nice to be with you again. Thanks for having me. Well, we're delighted you're here. Uh, I want to start by asking a question about the often miserable experience of traveling by air in this country. Uh, particularly this summer, uh, air passengers put up with an enormous number of flight delays and cancellations. Airline schedules seem to be really just suggestions about what might happen uh, rather than any sort of commitment for a plane uh, to take off, fly somewhere, and land. Can you walk us through the factors that explain this? What, what happened? So in a nutshell, what happened was demand came back more quickly than the airline sector was ready to support. Uh, on one hand, great news that passengers have the income and the inclination to return to the skies just a year or two after we were wondering whether the U.S. airline sector was going to survive at all. But the problem has been that there has not been uh, enough by way of staffing, resources, and a number of other issues have presented themselves as part of these shockwaves that have come since the pandemic uh, first arrived uh, that left the sector unable to handle this increase in demand. And we saw that reflected in the number of cancellations and delays we experienced over the summer. So uh, there, there's always going to be some level of travel disruption. Weather alone is, is a big part of that. And it's not unusual to have 1% or 2% uh, of flights canceled, especially during the summer. What we saw this summer was several busy travel weekends where it was more like 4%. Now, I know the difference between 2% and 4% doesn't sound like much mathematically, but it makes all the difference in the world in terms of whether the system is able to catch up, keep up. And it's really the difference between things feeling pretty much like business as usual and uh, seeing headlines that use words like chaos and meltdown. So uh, early in the summer, uh, I got together, uh, asked all of the uh, airline leadership to, to come together and uh, lay out what could be done differently and uh, how my department could help in terms of making sure that things moved on to a smoother footing. We've seen a lot of improvements since then, but uh, as we look back on the summer, uh, it's clear that the system is still not as resilient as it needs to be for us to be confident that uh, the passengers will be free from these kinds of increased cancellations and delays that affected so many of us over the course of this year. Fair enough. And the pandemic obviously was, was very disruptive. The recovery is, uh, from this historic episode has been, uh, has been perhaps understandably uneven. Uh, at the same time, taxpayers did pony up $54 billion to support the airlines uh, and uh, presumably prepare them for the resumption of travel. Uh, did we get our money's worth? Well, I certainly think it was the right move to step in and ensure that the airline industry did not collapse in 2020, Uh One of the best moments of the early days that, that I had in this job was when uh, I got word from the flight attendants union that, that they in turn had got word to tear up their furlough notices because the American Rescue Plan had passed. Uh, there was a very real danger of things uh, actually falling apart in a way that would have been irreversible. But the other side of that is when tens of billions of dollars of taxpayer money went into supporting this industry, uh, it is uh, uh, very uh, surprising, puzzling, and frustrating. Uh, to get to where, as we all hoped would happen, demand is back, passengers are back, airlines are back. And, and by the way, back into what looks like very profitable territory as, as we get uh, into the reporting that's coming out uh, in this part of this year. And you're still seeing these kinds of services. And uh, I'll give you an example of one of the things that I think contributed to that. Uh, the, these dollars, these taxpayer dollars that went to, to rescue the airlines, they did have strings attached. If you took that taxpayer money, uh, you couldn't turn around and, and fire people left and right. But there were still a lot of early retirement where people, including pilots, who were very hard to replace. It takes a long time to train a pilot. Uh, they were nudged into early retirement, or at least encouraged to do that, 
in a way that left the airlines uh, it, with, uh, without some of the uh, uh, resilience and readiness they needed to service these routes when the passengers did come back to life. So that's a big part of what the airlines need to work on right now, is making sure they have staffing levels that are adequate. And by the way, this is something that's happened across the system, uh, even uh, within the department and the FAA. Uh, we're working still to recover from the hole that, uh, that COVID blew in the training and qualification of air traffic control uh, so that we can make sure that that's never grant on up. So just to be clear, do you, do you think the airlines mismanaged their staffing requirements? Well, certainly they need to be prepared to service the tickets that they sell. And we didn't see that going into this summer. Part of that had to do with staff levels. I think also part of that had to do with scheduling, uh, a lot of uh, schedules that, that just weren't realistic. And so one of the things that I, I uh, urged the airlines to do, and, and to their credit, I think took place over the summer, was a trimming of the schedules, a thinning out of the schedules to make sure that they were uh, more realistic and more in alignment with what they could actually support given a realistic look at the staff levels of the cap. Now, our, our next guest, uh, United Airlines CEO, Scott Kirby, uh, has blamed the Federal Aviation Administration uh, for many of the delays. How much of, of the situation uh, legitimately is the responsibility of the federal government? Well, certainly not most of it. And if you look at the, the statistics around the causes of delays and cancellations, I want to be very clear that the majority of them are not the result of air traffic control staffing or related issues. But it is true uh, that we have had constraints on the air traffic control side, again, largely because uh, there was a disruption to the pipeline of getting controllers prepared. That was especially uh, causing issues in the New York area and in the Florida area. Uh, so, uh, again, I want to be clear in our aviation system, not responsible for the majority of the delays, but uh, to the extent that that has been an issue, we have leaned into working on solutions and make sure that we have uh, regular operational communication uh, all the way down to the day-to-day -day level with the airlines uh, to make sure that we're aligning our resources the best we can to meet demand uh, and that we're in touch with them. Something's happened that, that uh, I don't think anybody expected, including uh, demand, uh, for example, in that Florida market, uh, Florida market actually returning to levels that are higher than they were before the pandemic. Uh, and Florida, unfortunately, experienced a, a perfect storm of issues that included everything from weather to space launches, military activity, air traffic control issues, and some of these staffing concerns that have plagued the airline. So anytime there's anything that we can do to be part of the solution, we're going to move very quickly to do that. Uh, but none of that, of course, absolves the airlines uh, of the responsibility as they uh, sell profitable tickets. Uh, to be ready to provide an adequate level of customer service to back those up. Now, anecdotally, the, the situation does seem to have improved since the summer, or at least become less awful than it was uh, at that point. Uh, what's your assessment of the current state of play? How satisfactory or not is it? And to the extent that we have seen uh, some progress, how confident are you that it will stand up to increased demand over the holiday season? So the good news is we are seeing several steps uh, really bear fruit uh, in terms of uh, things we've been working on and things that the airlines have uh, done. Uh, and, and some of that has taken a lot of pushing on our side. Uh, we're really doing three things at once in order to drive and improve passenger experience. The first is enforcement, enforcing the rules we have, especially when we have issues like airlines failing to issue the uh, refunds that passengers are entitled to if they get a delay, a major delay or, or a cancellation and clarifying the rules around that. The second is raising the floor. In other words, uh, improving the, the, the rules as they stand and making sure that they're tough enough. And the third is using tools for things like transparency. Uh, so one thing that uh, I think led to a lot of improvement was uh, actually very simple, especially compared to the uh, complexity of a, a federal regulation or rulemaking, which was earlier this summer. Uh, we put together a website uh, listing the top 10 airlines and just giving you a green check mark or a red X next to uh, basic customer service practices that they were committed in writing to do. Things like, uh, you know, do they promise in writing that they're going to give you a, a meal or a hotel voucher if you, uh, if you get stuck and, and it's their fault? Or will they rebook you on another airline? And uh, when we made that decision to put up that website, which only took a week or two to build, uh, I notified the airlines that it was coming and encouraged them to, to use those next few days uh, to, to raise their customer service standards. In that two-week period, we went from zero to, I think, nine out of the top 10 airlines 
committing that they would at least do hotels and meals uh, and went from, I think, one to 10 out of the top 10 airlines. Uh, indicating that that they were committed to rebooking you if, if you got stuck. So those are some of the improvements that we've seen and we'll continue driving more. Uh, but on the operational side, we're not out of the woods yet. Uh, there is more work to do on the airlines when it comes to staffing. Uh, for us, when it comes to getting our air traffic control uh, where we want and need it to be. Uh, and I think for the system and the economy as a whole. Uh, so we're, we're cautiously watching this holiday period. I think it'll be uh, an improvement from uh, the, the toughest moments we saw over the summer, but not perfect. Uh, as we go into next year and start to see some of these pandemic shockwaves fully work their way through the system. I don't want to minimize the, the progress that's been made, but I have to say when I looked at that online dashboard, I was struck by how fairly modest uh, the, the compensations are that are provided by airlines. Uh, you know, a commitment to rebook you on a flight on the same airline and, and take you where you've already paid to go maybe a voucher for a meal or, or a hotel, that's obviously uh, better than the alternative. Uh, it, except when you fly in Europe, the compensation when the airlines don't deliver what they've promised uh, is typically hundreds of dollars paid back to you in compensation. Why am I so better protected uh, when I travel in the EU than I am here at home? Well, there's no easy apples to apples comparison between uh, US and, and uh, European regulations, but it is worth noting that uh, there are uh, additional consumer protections uh, that other countries have, and we're taking a look at that right now. As a matter of fact, we have two pending regulations out for comment right now, which means that if you're a passenger and you want to weigh in, you can go to our website and, uh, and share your experiences or, or, or make your views known. One of them has to do with ancillary fees and making sure there's accountability when you don't get what you paid for uh, when, when you pay for fees like uh, baggage or, or, or Wi-Fi. And a second having to do with uh, cancellations and delays and toughening the rules around that. And uh, we may well have uh, reason to go further in that direction. Uh, so what we're trying to do is make sure that we enforce an adequate floor but also encourage the airlines to go well above and beyond that floor, uh, which is part of why we found transparency has been as powerful a tool as the regulatory side, and we're gonna to continue to use both. Now, as you know, in, in August, a, a bipartisan group of state uh, attorneys general uh, complained that your agency was, quote, unable or unwilling to hold the airline industry accountable, close quote, uh, and asked for states to be given new powers in this area to step in uh, and for the Federal Trade Commission to take over from DOT uh, in some areas. What's, what's your response to those complaints? Uh, and in hindsight, are there things that you think your department could have done or should have done uh, during the worst of this situation? Well, I'm, I'm proud of the results that we were able to get, uh, including some actions that, that we had undertaken before this uh, summer of travel problems even took place. Uh, it was before the summer, for example, that we issued the uh, strongest fine in the history of the Consumer Protection Program uh, against an airline that was failing to meet its obligations in terms of refunds. And we're going to keep pushing and uh, keep working to get more results. Uh, we are also working with states, working with attorneys general to make sure that uh, that their uh, view and their authorities are represented. Uh, we have an attorney general, for example, uh, the attorney general of Michigan, uh, participating in our uh, Aviation Consumer Protection Advisory Committee, which is uh, helping to frame some of the uh, road ahead for the work that we do. I don't think uh, it's workable to have uh, 50 or 52 different regulatory frameworks for a single national aviation system, which is why we need uh, a strong federal role here. Uh, but we do uh, recognize the, uh, the the consumer protection uh, experience that a lot of attorneys general have and, and welcome the chance to work with them on, on some of these opportunities. But are, are there any uh, specific areas or reforms that, that you'd be willing to put forward, perhaps working with Congress to sort of toughen up uh, the pressure on airlines to, to do a better job of providing the service that uh, that they're selling, as, as you indicated uh, earlier, you know, in, in many uh, many cases, the airline schedules were uh, way beyond what they knew they had the people to deliver, uh, and yet they don't seem to have paid much of a price for that. Well, this is one of the reasons why making sure passengers get the refunds they're entitled to is so important, right? Uh, in theory, if uh, everybody gets those refunds when their flight is canceled, uh, that means that there would never be any incentive uh, for an airline to uh, do unrealistic scheduling. They would only be hurting their own profitability when they did it. That's in theory. 
we need to make sure practice catches up to theory. And that's part of what we've been working on, again, in three parallel lines of effort. Enforcement of the rules that we have, toughening of the rules so that they're stronger than they were, and transparency uh, around uh, airline practices, which we found can be uh, actually a, a very uh, fast-acting ingredient toward an improved passenger experience. Uh, definitely interested in continuing to work with Congress as well on, uh, on uh, possibilities on what we can do. For example, uh, we have a uh, remarkably hardworking uh, consumer protection team, but I think far, far fewer people uh, than most Americans would expect in this department uh, who handle everything from drafting regulations to handling the tens of thousands of complaints that come in. And by the way, you should know that as a passenger, that you, if, if you're not being treated appropriately by an, airplane, uh, by an airline, you can let us know directly and we can follow up and enforce on that. But uh, working with Congress to make sure that our aviation consumer protection team has the resources and the technology and the staffing that they need uh, to be proactive and not just uh, reactive, uh, which they've done with, with remarkably, uh, remarkably lean resources today. That's just one example of something that I really welcome a chance to work with Congress on, uh, on, on furthering and strengthening. Now, uh, later this week, shareholders of Spirit Airlines are scheduled to vote on the proposed merger with JetBlue. And I realize antitrust uh, questions are, are not your bailiwick. They belong to the Attorney General uh, Merrick Garland. Uh, but I do wonder whether you have a view as to whether uh, these type of mergers uh, will benefit consumers, whether there's sufficient competition in the industry uh, in general, or whether uh, this consolidation trend is, uh, is a problem. Well, as you mentioned, DOJ has the lead on this, although I should note that uh, we also have uh, some responsibilities when it comes to uh, not just uh, consumer protection, but uh, the competition side uh, of how airlines are managed in this country. And it's something that we're leaning into pursuant to the president's executive order around competition. Uh, I'm not going to weigh in directly on something that, uh, that, that is being adjudicated right now and that uh, DOJ is working on. But I will say broadly that we need to make sure there is a very rigorous standard for how we evaluate uh, all of this. Because if you go back to the history of airline deregulation, you look at uh, what was expected in the 1970s when, uh, uh, when we really changed the way that, uh, that the aviation sector works in our economy. Most people who were advancing deregulation sincerely believed that there would be dozens of competitive airlines uh, competing for, for market share uh, in the U.S. economy by the time we got into the, uh, the 2000s. And in fact, what we've seen across the 2000s is fewer and fewer airlines, where now just a handful uh, control more than two-thirds of the market. Anytime you have that kind of concentration, you have to be especially vigilant about any indications that that is either depressing the passenger experience uh, or uh, creating upward pressure on prices. And, and I know that's something that uh, within the authorities we have, my department continues to look at, and I trust it's a big part of how DOJ is evaluating things too. I, I wanna take a moment to ask you about a, a different mode of travel now, rail and under the heading of, of uh, infrastructure projects, which I know is, is uh, a big focus of yours. Uh, it, it's clear our infrastructure across the board needs an upgrade, it's not clear that we've necessarily figured out how to build these big projects on time and at a reasonable cost. And much as I hate to advertise our competition, the New York Times had a very good story the other day about the high-speed rail project in California, uh, which has spent billions of dollars and doesn't have much to show for it to this point. And things were so bad that a French company that was actually involved in that project gave up and went to Morocco instead because they said there was less political dysfunction in North Africa than there was in the great state of California. So as we prepare to, to build out uh, major projects under the Bipartisan Infrastructure Act, how confident are you that we're not going to see these kind of uh, mishaps, these kind of problems crop up time and time again? Well, th this is one reason why we're very focused on delivery. Matter of fact, we just had a summit at the White House on exactly this topic last week, and it's a major focus in, in my department and all of the other departments working on delivering the president's infrastructure law. And look, we're up against a, a, a real headwind that, that's not just a function of the uh, politics and economics of American infrastructure today. Uh, it's a function of mega projects in general. You could go all the way back to antiquity and the construction of 
temples and pyramids to see all the many, many ways in which very big projects very frequently take longer and cost more than they were supposed to or were expected to. And so much depends on us fighting off that tendency uh, because we need to make sure that the American people see $1.2 trillion worth of value out of the $1.2 trillion in funding that the president has uh, signed, uh, about half of which is for transportation infrastructure as part of this infrastructure package. It's one of the reasons why we're engaging very closely with the project sponsors who are doing the building. Uh, notably, uh, that's typically not our department. It's usually a state, a transit agency, a city, uh, an airport that, that's specifically undertaking the project. We need to connect them up with the resources they need, not just in terms of the project funding itself, but in terms of best practices, technical assistance, uh, attention to the permitting process and community engagement so that it happens early, often, and, and serves to smooth out the project instead of uh, leading to 11th hour delays, uh, which is largely a matter of getting that kind of engagement right uh, and looking at other things that can be done to create uh, a, an alternative to the complexity of a lot of this. Even in our own department, just things like the uh, process of grant making, we started consolidating uh, multiple programs from multiple applications into one so that there's less paperwork. Uh, this is something we're going to have to continue to be very vigilant on, especially in an inflationary environment uh, where time is money and the sooner you can get a project done, the more affordable it's going to be for taxpayers. And that's true not to leave aviation, you know, just to give one set of examples. Uh, you know, you look at the investments we're making in LAX to, to improve the, the dreaded horseshoe where, where it can take uh, half an hour just to drop somebody off, uh, the way that the, the highway and the road meets the drop-off area. Denver, where we're investing in better baggage claim system, because we know that's going to help uh, speed processing there. Uh, Atlanta, where Concourse D needs to be about 20 feet wider than it currently is, and we're uh, uh, providing funding as, as part of the vision of making that a reality. Airports large and small, all the way down to Chamberlain, South Dakota, where the General Aviation Terminal right now is a mobile home, and we have a grant of about $800,000 that's going to help them uh, have a, a, a consistent permanent building there that, that, that meets the needs of that rural community. Uh, even within the aviation sector, we see so many projects where success is so important to the communities they serve, and delivery is so important, whether those projects are the success that we all envision them to be. Now, in the 60 seconds or so that we have left, uh, I know you've worked a lot on the supply chain situation in the country that's been a big contributor to our inflation problem. How do you assess the progress at this point? I know the, the queue of ships waiting off the coast of Southern California is way down from its record high, still a little higher than its pre-pandemic level. Uh, how much progress do you think has been made? How much of it is due to the federal government's efforts? How much is just a reflection of slower production coming out of China and perhaps weaker demand as higher interest rates bite here? So uh, we've definitely seen a lot of progress. Uh, this time last year, we were looking at something like 100 ships bearing down on the West Coast ports. Last time I checked, it was more on the order of a dozen or sometimes even in single digits. But that doesn't mean that the issues are solved. I'm, I'm proud of the work that we've done, uh, especially with our supply chains task force, working every end of the supply chain from ship to shore, from the uh, container terminals to the availability of uh, chassis to the uh, support for the trucking uh, workforce, all the way through to the warehouse, warehouse the, the rail system, which is key, and ultimately to the shelf and, and to your home. Uh, so we are going to be in a dramatically better position this retail season than we were last year. Although I would note that last year, after all the uh, pain and, and frustration we went through uh, in, uh, well, months like October, uh, we got through the holiday season with an all-time record high. Uh, in terms of retail sales. And that's really because so many people, uh, beginning with the port workers and, and truck drivers and warehouse and, and rail and other workers, uh, stepped up to deliver. We are not out of the woods on these supply chain disruptions. Let, let me be very clear about that. More work to be done in the immediate term, which we're undertaken, and in the long term, which is why we're making these big infrastructure investments in every part uh, of our multimodal transportation systems. But we are in decidedly better shape than we were and looking forward to more progress in the months ahead. Great. Uh, interesting. And uh, unfortunately, we are now out of time, so we'll have to leave it there. Uh, Secretary Pete Buttigieg, thanks so much for joining us today. Pleasure to be with you. Thanks. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content.
Hello, I'm Jean Meserve. It has been a challenging few years for the aviation industry. First the pandemic, then the recovery from the pandemic, and then some new shock waves, including labor shortages, high energy prices, and the Russia-Ukraine war. With me to discuss is Larry Culp. He is chairman and CEO of GE and also CEO of GE Aerospace. Great to have you with us today. Thank you, Jean. So first, of those challenges that I mentioned, which do you see as the most consequential and how are you dealing with it? You know, I would say it's probably the convergence of all of those challenges that have come together here in the last couple of years to make this perhaps the most daunting operating environment I've seen in my career. We power at GE Aerospace, three out of every four commercial departures around the world on a daily basis. So we're working very hard with our customers to return to flight. And at the same time, our airframer customers are ramping production at a rather dramatic rate. And we're working to keep pace with them as well. We're doing all of that very much using the lean management principles that we've used here over the last several years, which help us enhance the safety and quality of what we do for our customers, all the while improving our delivery and productivity performance. This is a exciting time we believe in the aerospace industry we're pleased to play the role that we do and we look forward over the next several years to be part of that recovery you mentioned lean management you embrace it you used it to drive ge's turnaround for those who aren't familiar with the term what is lean management and how are you using it exactly in the current circumstances gene lean management as it's known today is really rooted in the Toyota production system, which came about after World War II as Toyota was trying to manage through a period of great scarcity. Today, it's a wonderful way to run a factory, but also really, I think, the best way to run a business. There are a lot of elements to lean, but some of the core principles are a focus on the customer, relying on the people who are closest to the work to improve it, making every day count through daily management, and solving problems at their root cause. Now, a lot of that is common sense, and I've often used the shorthand of common sense vigorously applied to define lean, but it really does shape the way we do the work that we do with our airframer customers, the airlines, and our suppliers to improve safety, quality, delivery, and cost on a regular basis. And it's really helping us today, not only in our engine manufacturing operations, improve our output quarter in, quarter out, but also in our service operations to reduce the turnaround time required for us to repair or overhaul an engine to get it back up in the air. Let's talk for a moment about sustainability. You took part in the first ever experimental flight with passengers that used 100% sustainable aviation fuel or SAF. How critical is SAF to reaching the goal of net zero flights by 2050? Gene, I think most of us in the industry see SAF as playing a critical role as we move forward toward those net zero goals. We were thrilled to have the opportunity to partner with United Airlines on that first flight, 100% SAF in one engine. Scott Kirby, their CEO, has really spearheaded their efforts, and I think very much for the industry as well with respect to sustainability. But it's not going to be just SAF alone in our view. We're working with Airbus, for example, on a hydrogen propulsion demonstrator. We're doing the same thing with NASA in and around hybrid electrics with an eye toward powering a commercial airliner this decade. And we're also updating and advancing traditional propulsion systems. Our RISE program aims to utilize open fan architectures to drive in excess of a 20% improvement in efficiency and in turn emissions. So there's a lot to do on the path to 2050. Some of that is down the road. What are you doing right now to address sustainability? Gene, we think we're doing a lot today because if you look at what GE Aerospace has done through the last several decades, it's with each generation of technology, improve efficiency and reduce emissions. If you look at today's engines compared to those that we produced in the 1980s, our engines are 40% more efficient today, largely through advanced design capabilities and manufacturing techniques like 3D printing and CMCs. 
that gives us tremendous capability, not only today, but we couple that with our foam wash service capabilities in addition to using software from our GE Digital Aviation business to help airlines plan and operate routes in a more efficient and productive way. Is sustainability also a concern of your military customers? Gene, very much so. And we see tremendous read across from our commercial business to our military business, and at times in the other direction as well. We are working on a next generation engine, the XA100 for the F-35, and improved efficiency and emissions is very much a part of what the military is driving with that program. Interestingly, this next generation technology, which we think should drive a 20% improvement in capability, also enhances that platform's mission capability, particularly as it pertains to range. So all of those objectives are ones that we hope we'll be able to deliver for our military customers. Larry Culp, Chairman and CEO of GE and also CEO of GE Aerospace. Thanks so much for joining us. And now back to Washington Post Live. Welcome back. And for those of us, uh, those of you just tuning in, welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David J. Lynch, Global Economics Correspondent here at The Post. I'm joined now by United Airlines CEO Scott Kirby to continue our discussion about the future of aviation. Scott, welcome to Washington Post Live. Thanks for having me, David. Well, we're glad you're here. Uh, I want to start you off with the same question I asked Secretary Buttigieg, which is basically what happened to air travel this summer. Uh, I think the traveling public, uh, many of us still bear the scars from the flight delays, the cancellations uh, that we saw, not just United, but all, all across the industry. Uh, what explains the, the uh, disappointing performance? Well, David, uh, I think if you bear scars, you must have been flying an airline other than United, uh, because the reality is that at United, we actually had the best third quarter operating performance uh, in the history of United Airlines, excluding 2020 when we weren't flying. Uh, but we had the you know, best on-time performance, lowest cancellation rate. So I think this narrative, you know, it's true at some airlines, uh, but at United, you know, despite all the challenges around the industry and around the globe, uh, it turns out that we actually had the best operating performance that we've had since 2020. And October is now setting uh, even bigger uh, and newer records. So. Uh, you know, I feel really good about where we are at United um, and uh, and where we're headed for the future for our customers. Well, I, I must have been unlucky enough to catch you on a, a, a bad day at the end of July, but I won't uh, I won't belabor the point. <laughs> uh, I am curious, though, about the planning assumptions that you took into the year in terms of what you anticipated uh, by way of how the the traveling recovery uh, would manifest itself. What did, what did you expect and how different uh, was the set of circumstances that ultimately played out? Yeah, you know, we expected strong demand. It's been even stronger than we started. And one of the things that we changed and one of the reasons the summer uh, was the best, that doesn't mean it was perfect. Um, and particularly there, you know, any days that there are weather delays and we had some other unique challenges, which may, we may or may not talk about that really weren't united. Uh, related directly, but uh, is we pulled the schedule back um, and we just decided we, we have 10% more pilots for black hour than we had pre-pandemic. Um, we're running a lower utilization of our aircraft than we were before the pandemic. Uh, and all of that is to build more buffer into the system. One other big change that happened for United uh, is we had 52 of our biggest airplanes, the, the Pratt & Whitney Power 777s, two of our largest airplanes that were grounded uh, that came online really at the beginning of the summer. And it takes time to ramp that up. And that has a huge impact that just flows through the whole system. And, and so while the third quarter was the best in our history, every single month in the quarter got meaningfully better. September was by a wide margin better. July wouldn't have been better. Uh, but that 777 issue was probably the biggest. But I think the most significant thing that we've done differently is build more buffer into the system. And look, there's issues beyond our control. Um, you know, I know that Secretary Buttigieg was on earlier. I talked to him, uh, you know, uh, about air traffic control. That's one of the issues. Uh, but the issue there really is the FAA does an amazing job and they jump through all kinds of hoops uh, to keep the air traffic control system running. But we have fewer controllers today 
in the United States than we had 30 years ago. And we have about triple the number of operations. That means there's a system that is just on the very edge. And what's really happened with the FAA is they've been asked to do so much more. They're doing space launches and drones and far more certification work without a con, you know, an increase in their budget at the same time. And so those resources have come out of the day-to-day -day operation. And I think what we all need to do, uh, is what I told the secretary yesterday when we spoke, is work in the next FAA reauthorization bill to get the air traffic control system staffed. We've invested billions of dollars in the infrastructure around this country. Um, and you know we wind up with air traffic control delays for one or two sick calls uh, that have impact of hundreds of flight delays or can have impacts of hundreds of delays uh, or cancellations. And so anyway, those are the kinds of issues that I think still remain to be resolved. And we all should work together to do that. And it's nobody's fault uh, that we're, we're here, but we are where we are and we should work together uh, to really get the FAA resourced appropriately. And to say that we have the same number of controllers or fewer controllers today than we did 30 years ago just doesn't pass the smell test for anyone, I don't think. And so looking ahead, what, what should people uh, expect as they uh, as they head out for the holiday season, November and December this year? How, how well do you think the system uh, can stand up to the strain? Yeah, look, the system is running really well right now. Um, you know, I've, I've said we're setting records uh, every day. In fact, my, our operating team said last week was the best week um, in all of our records at United Airlines. Uh, operations. So we're running well. The truth is the whole industry is running a lot better. I think everyone has done to some, you know, to greater or lesser degree what United has done, which is simply fly fly less, build more buffer into the system. Uh, and we've built that buffer into the system and that's letting us overcome, you know, more of the challenges. I mean, look at the impact that, the, you know, the, the devastating impact that Hurricane Ian had um, on Florida and the Southeast. Uh, while it had devastating human and, and toll on buildings and infrastructure, uh, airlines came back pretty quickly and more so than they've ever done in the past. I think that's an indication that the industry is just building more buffer into the system and that buffer is letting us recover quickly. And so I think, and I, and I think also, by the way, I know the FAA is focused on the holidays um, and they're pulling more levers, whether it's overtime or having people come in for extra shifts in order to cover for things and they're focused on it. Uh, and so I'm hopeful that the the holidays will will go well. Uh, but it is a system that's tight, um, and in a system that's tight, you know, if you get bad weather or get something that happens, you know, it can be challenging. But uh, it, it's a better setup than the whole industry had going into the summer. Now, one thing I think we've seen during the uh, the recovery uh, is that leisure travel has bounced back more quickly or more completely than has business travel. To what extent do you think that change in your customer mix uh, is permanent? And, and to what extent is it just taking longer? Uh, will, will business travel ever go back to where it was in 2019? Well, I think this is one of the big takeaways. We just released earnings uh, half an hour ago, and we're going to talk about it at our earnings call tomorrow. One of the epiphanies that I've had recently is there's a structural change in leisure, what we call leisure travel, that is higher. People are going to travel more. And the reason is because hybrid work now gives them the flexibility to travel when they didn't have it before. Uh, if you're working hybrid, it means every weekend has the potential to be a three or four day weekend. When you were tethered to your desk and had to be there Monday to Friday, nine to five, you couldn't get away for a weekend. Um, now you can leave on Wednesday or Thursday or come back on Monday, Tuesday or Wednesday and work remotely for one or two days. And what we saw in September, for example, September was the third highest rouse a month in the history of United Airlines. And September is the off, most off peak of all months. And for that to be the third highest in our history was remarkable. What we saw is the midweek days, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, had about an eight point improvement in load factor, while the weekend days, they had an improvement, but they were about up about 3%. That is all about people taking new, having the flexibility to travel now more than they did before. I think it's a permanent structural change in, in demand because people can now, now are untethered from their desks and have the flexibility and the freedom uh, to travel for weekend getaways more than they ever did in the past. Uh, airlines, like uh, many other industries, have struggled to find enough workers uh, to, to do the work that needs to be done. Uh, I believe United became the uh, first major U.S. airline earlier this year uh, to open up a, a school, your own school, to train pilots. 
Uh, tell me a little bit about what went into yeah. that decision and how well uh, is it working? Yeah. So uh, first, you know, I'd say we're on track to hire 15,000 new uh, employees at United Airlines this year. We create great careers. They're not jobs, they're careers uh, where people can, you know, earn six digit incomes after they've been here a few years, great benefits. Uh, and because of that, we don't actually have a challenge hiring at United Airlines. A lot of the infrastructure around us does, whether it's, you know, screeners or the FAA or fuel vendors and others. Um, but we don't have a problem. But there is a shortage of pilots in the aviation industry it has more pernicious effects in other places than just at United Airlines. And we decided during the pandemic to be the only airline that I know of in the world uh, that founded our own flight training academy. It's called Aviate. Uh, we bring in students. They can come in with, with no training experience. Uh, we give them better training than they got traditionally in civilian flight schools, including things we call it upset recovery training. Uh, but we give them better training, more training than they would get somewhere else. They, of course, still have to pass all the certification that any pilot would have to pass to get through. Uh, but we're going to take about 500 people a year through the Aviate Training Academy and then have them in the United Airlines ecosystem uh, with the ability to fly, you know, someday fly a United uh, YBI jet. And not only are we doing a great job at training the next generation of pilots, but we're making a difference on diversity efforts with this. Uh, today, fewer than 20% of the pilots in the United States are women or people of color. 80% of our students at the Aviate Academy are women or people of color. And if you go out there, it's one of the most inspirational things you can see to listen to their stories uh, and talk and hear them talk about their excitement for their future uh, and the opportunity that, that it creates for them. So we're really proud. Uh, it's the right thing to do for us as a business, but it's also the right thing for us to do just for society at large. And it's a perfect example of the difference that private companies can make uh, that go beyond just doing day-to-day -day business decisions. Earlier today, uh, I believe you participated in the first Eco Skies Alliance Summit, along with Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo and several yep. members of Congress. What's that alliance about and what sort of concrete uh, accomplishments do you anticipate from it? Yeah. Well, United uh, is the leader in, in global aviation in terms of sustainability uh, by a wide margin. And the EcoSkies Alliance is about increasing the size of the tent and partners that will help us uh, invest and, and more than anything, be a megaphone for the kinds of long-term investments that we need to make in order to get to 100% green. United is unique, not just amongst aviation, but unique amongst companies in making a commitment to be 100% green by 2050. And that is different than net zero, which is what most companies say. And the reason is we've committed to getting to 100% green without using traditional carbon offsets. And the reason for that is traditional carbon offsets are mostly about planting trees. And there's nothing wrong with planting trees. But the truth is most of those carbon offsets aren't real. Those are trees that were going to be planted anyway or trees that were never going to be cut down. But the bigger point is that system can't scale. Um, if we planted every square inch of the planet that could grow trees, uh, it would account for less than five months of mankind's emissions. Uh, by the way, we'd all starve to death because we just covered up all the farms. Uh, but it also, because it's only five months, it's done and it's over. And the real problem we have, I think, in corporate America, not just in aviation, with net zero commitments is because they rely on this really small thing, which is planting trees, it's the easy answer. Um, and the easy answer isn't going to get us there, and we have to do something different. So for us at United, the two big ones are sustainable aviation, fuel, and carbon sequestration. Right, and I think you've got an interim goal uh, of cutting your uh, greenhouse gas emissions in half by 2035. What are you know what what makes that difficult? What are the hurdles that you've got to clear between now and then to make that a reality? Uh, and and how? Uh, widespread or how easily available is uh, so-called sustainable aviation fuel? Well, the answer to the first part of the question is wrapped up in the second part. Uh, the only way to get there is sustainable aviation fuel for, for United and for aviation around the world. And the problem is that industry is tiny today. Um, you know, we are United's commitment uh, to sustainable aviation fuel is more than all the rest of the world's airlines combined, but it's still just a drop in the bucket of our total needs. Uh, and the challenge is we've got to build that industry. It basically doesn't exist today. 
The great news is the Inflation Reduction Act uh, had several provisions about sustainability that I think we will look back 15 years from now and say it was one of the most consequential pieces of legislation passed in the last 30 years. Um, and, and particularly what it does for SAF, for hydrogen credits, and for carbon sequestration is really going to, it makes hundreds of, of projects potentially viable uh, that weren't before. And the key is going to be once we start investing in those projects, we can drive the economies of scale um, and make the economics work on a long-term sustainable basis. It's going to, it really is the seed capital uh, to start, to jumpstart these industries. And, and I believe we'll be able to do the same thing with SAF and with carbon sequestration that happened with wind and solar, which if you went back 20 or 30 years ago, people said were uneconomic, could never compete with coal or natural gas. And today it's cheaper to produce a megawatt of electricity from wind or solar than it is from coal or nat gas. And the same thing can happen with SAF and carbon sequestration. And the Inflation Reduction Act really enables hundreds of projects that weren't viable before. And, and I think that's gonna be the key uh, to getting to our goals. And, and so how, how quickly can SAF be, be brought online in, in a meaningful sense? I mean, when, uh, you know, what sort of goals do you have to get to 20% of your fuel consumption, 50%, et cetera, et cetera. Lay out the, the timeline for me to the extent that- We're years have. away. We're years away. Uh, and the issue is really feedstock. Um, and, to, and, and so that is, what do you use to make the fuel? Uh, is it corn? Is it used cooking oil? Um, and all of those are constrained. Uh, one of the challenges it has been that if you're producing uh, renewable diesel or ethanol, there were always government credits. Um, and so you were always better off using that corn or whatever the feedstock was, you're better off using it to produce ethanol or diesel than you were SAF because you got extra government credit. The Inflation Reduction Act gets us onto a more level playing field. So we could use those. I think the biggest answer is power to liquid. Uh, the only way to really solve this liquid fuel issue, which is SAF and others, but liquid fuel issue, is going to be power liquids. Power liquids is taking carbon from some source. It can be straight out of the atmosphere, combining it with water and using clean energy. So using wind or solar uh, to use that energy to turn the carbon and the water uh, into, into fuel. And that, that literally is, you know, making fuel out of thin air. Uh, it takes energy, so you need cleaner energy to do it. Uh, but I think that's the most promising and scalable technology for the future. Uh, but it's just beginning, and and it's years away from from really being scalable. But it's okay. I mean, this is not a this is not going to be linear. If you look at the cu the curves, you know, for any technology like this, they're very slow and shallow at the bottom, and then they hit an inflection point and they go through the roof. Uh, once you get the technology working, we're still in the get the technology working phase. I, I want to go to a question from a member of our audience. Uh, Christopher Bolsinger from Massachusetts asks, is decreasing greenhouse gas emissions enough? What disruptive technologies are we exploring to rethink air travel more broadly? Well, first, uh, I, I'm not sure what he means, and totally what he means here, Christopher, but what I'd say is, first, I think it's important that we travel and stay connected with the world. One of the less talked about casualties of COVID was the loss of global connectivity, the loss of, of global perspective. Uh, I The first time I said this on stage was at uh, COP26 in uh, Scotland, and it was in um, November of 2021. And I said, look, before the pandemic, United Airlines carried 1,000 US citizens a day to China and 1,000 Chinese citizens to the United States. And all that creates bridges and understanding that when things happen and there's crisis, there's a lot of these bridges and perspective to understand. It doesn't mean we'll always agree, but we're a lot closer because we spend time together and understand each other. We carried 100 or so people a day back and forth each day to Russia. And what I said at the time was the world is a more dangerous place because we haven't been connected and people have become isolated and lost touch with others' perspective. That sadly turned out to be prophetic. Um, so I think the first point is, Travel is important. It's not just something that people like to do. It's not just important for business. It is important for a global society. Uh, Juan Tripp um, said you know, something uh, early in his career that his job was shrinking the world um, when he, you know, at, uh, at Pan Am. And, um, and that is true today. So what we should do though, we need to continue to travel. We need to do it sustainably. 
Um, and if you ask for you know disruptive technologies uh, to do that, I, I think the most disruptive thing doesn't just apply to aviation. It applies to the globe, and that is carbon sequestration. Like the only answer that we have to get the globe to zero that anyone has today. There's some theoretical silver bullets like fusion energy, but that's probably not happening anytime soon. Uh, but is carbon sequestration. That's just a matter of cost. We can sequester as much carbon as we want. Um, I personally am an advocate for a price on carbon, uh, for a carbon tax, because if we did that, it would drive the incentives uh, correctly for carbon sequestration. But if you're looking for a disruptive technology, it's not unique to aviation, uh, but it is carbon sequestration. At United, we're, we were proud to be partnered with Occidental and 1.5 uh, in what is the world's uh, largest and first commercial scale carbon sequestration plant. Um, others are starting to do it now. When we started on carbon sequestration, I had to explain what that word meant to people. Um, uh, many more people know it today. But if you're looking for a disruptive uh, technology that can work, uh, carbon sequestration is probably your answer. Now, very quickly, because we're just about out of time, but I wanted to ask you briefly about uh, your plans for electric aircraft. I, I think you're planning on fielding them or at least getting them in the air uh, by the end of this decade. Uh, yeah. What sort of role do you envision for them and, and how uh, how much of a difference could they make? Yeah, electric aircraft uh, and electric air taxis are both going to be great for short haul aviation. I mean, I think the easiest use case is, you know, if you're in Midtown and want to get out to an airport, you know, get out to the airport in Newark instead of sitting in traffic. Um, you know, you can you can take an electric air taxi, uh, be quieter, safer uh, than a traditional helicopter would have been. Uh, that's one of the use cases. The other one is short haul airplanes, uh, you know, flying from Denver to Breckenridge or Denver to Vail, you know, those kinds of mountain communities. But it really that's really a, a kind of a niche. Uh, the the reality is that the energy density for batteries is nowhere is way too low for us to ever be able to fly big airplanes long distances. So electric aircraft are gonna be, I think, important for short haul service, uh, but they're not going to be big airplanes flying even medium haul distances. There's not even any theoretical technology on the drawing boards uh, that would allow that. So uh, it, it's, it's important, uh, but it's gonna be focused on the short haul. Fair enough. Uh, well, uh, that does uh, exhaust our time. Uh, I want to thank you, Scott Kirby of United Airlines, for joining us today. We appreciate uh, having you with us. Uh, and thanks to all of you for joining the conversation. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.